man. Great, great, great day of, of worship. Uh, my name's Matt. I'm one, of the, I'm one of the pastors here, and so good to gather with you um, this Sunday. Hey, there's, this is something that I believe. I, I believe this world pulls us in so many different directions. Do you believe that? Do you believe that you live in a world that's always pulling you in a different direction, your mind, your heart, your schedule, your emotions, all these different? I think one of the points of getting together on Sundays is for us to focus on the things that are most important. And here's what I believe. I believe God actually has something for you today. I believe that you're in this place for a reason, and I don't, I don't believe God just stands at a distance and he lets it all go. I think God's spirit is active and alive in the world today, and I think he wants you to experience life. So I'm so glad that you're here. Uh, we're gonna open up God's word, is that okay? And uh, find some life there. We're gonna take a long journey today, but I promise I will land the plane somewhere. <laughs> That's good news, at least, right? Um, we're in this series on the book of James, and James is a, is a letter in the New Testament. Um, so it's a letter that comes uh, after Jesus has died, after he's been resurrected, and it's actually written, it's very interesting, it's written um, by Jesus' half-brother. And his half-brother actually did not believe Jesus was who he said he was for a portion of his life. I mean, if you think about it, how hard would it be to believe that your brother or sister, I mean, if they went around claiming that they were the son or daughter of God, you'd be like, okay, I get that spiritually, but not literally. You're not really, I mean, walk on water or something, and then I'll believe it, right? So James really didn't believe it for a while, and it was only after the resurrection when he experienced the resurrected Jesus, his brother, that he kind of changed his mind and his heart, and God transformed him. And so he wrote this letter in the New Testament to encourage believers and give them um, some instruction, some teaching that would help them actually live in a world that does not believe in Jesus. And so that's why we have this letter that's been recorded for us. So for these five weeks, we're just focusing on this one letter. We're kind of digging into this one letter. Um, today, I, I gave some homework last week. You get to, to like self-correct, and so I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand if you did, did your homework, but you're going to have the same homework, maybe a little added piece this week, and here it is, super simple. Um, James is five chapters, read one chapter a day. So James chapter one tomorrow, and then you get Saturday off. How great is that? Um, but dig into God's word, and I got some emails from some of you who said, like, I actually got back into the Bible. I haven't read it in a long time, and, and it's interesting to see what God bubbles up when we're in there. So that's what we're doing, is digging into James, and I hope you'll do it during the week, not just on Sunday. Um, have you ever been driving down the road, and all of a sudden, you like woke up, and you kind of asked yourself, how did I get right here? Anybody ever been there? Or am I the only one? Okay, good. Some of you. It's like, I hope I did not run a stop sign or red light or hit one of those bikers on the side of the road. I have no idea how I got here, but here I am. We get into these patterns and these routines, and what's interesting is we get so locked into patterns and routines that we don't even realize that we're doing it. Um, I, I read a book um, by Charles Duhigg called The Power of Habit. And I'm going to let Charles talk to you here just for a second. I want to show you a, a video. But, but one of the things that he talks about is how powerful habits are in our lives and how we get stuck in certain routines, and we don't even know that we're stuck in routines. And I think there's a great tie into James that we're going to get to. One of the, one of the studies that he points out, um, done by Duke University, says this, that 40% of the activity that we pursue in our lives is actually habitual, and it's not conscious decisions that we're making. Isn't that interesting? 40% of what we do every single day is something that we just do because we've done it, and it's, it's not an active decision that we're making. For example, go with me on this. 
Um, what is one thing that you do every morning, regardless of what else is going on? What's one thing? You can talk in church. Somebody said drink coffee. Okay, you drink coffee every single morning. It's a habit. You just do it every morning. Someone else said brush your teeth, and hopefully it's in that order. Like, drink coffee and then brush your teeth. Hopefully that's the habit. But we get into these habits. We don't even realize why we're doing them. Charles Duhigg found himself in a habit, and he did some research to study how do you get into habits, and then how do you actively work to change them. Check this out. Imagine for a moment that you have a habit that you really want to change. Let's say, for instance, you go up to the cafeteria every afternoon and you eat a chocolate chip cookie. This habit has caused you to gain a little bit of weight. In fact, this habit has caused you to gain exactly eight pounds, and your wife has started making some pointed comments. And when I say you, what I really mean is me, because this is a habit that I had that I just couldn't kick. To understand why that habit was so powerful and what it would take to change it, I had to learn how habits work. Every habit functions the same way. At first, there's a cue, some type of trigger that makes the behavior unfold automatically. Studies tell us that a cue can be a location, a time of day, a certain emotional state, other people, or just a pattern of behaviors that consistently triggers a certain routine. To figure out the cue for my craving, I spent a few days tracking exactly when the urge to eat a cookie hit. And what I noticed pretty soon was something interesting. The cookie craving always hit about between 3 o'clock and 3.30 in the afternoon. That was my cue. It was a certain time of day. The next part in the habit loop is the routine, the behavior itself. And for me, that was pretty easy to figure out. Every day between 3 and 3.30, I'd get this craving for a cookie, I'd get up out of my chair, I'd walk over to the elevator, I'd take the elevator up to the 14th floor, I'd get out, I'd buy a cookie, and then I would eat it while talking to my colleagues in the cafeteria. The last part of the habit loop is the reward. And in some respects, the reward is the most important part because that's why habits exist, so that we can get the rewards that we want. But figuring out a reward is kind of tricky. To figure out what reward was driving my habit, I did a little bit of an experiment. One day when the cookie urge struck, instead of going up to the cafeteria, I went outside and I took a walk around the block. Then the next day, I went up to the cafeteria, but instead of buying a cookie, I got a candy bar and then ate it at my desk. And then the day after that, I went up to the cafeteria again, but I didn't buy anything. Instead, I just talked to friends for about 10 minutes. You get the idea. What I was trying to do was test different hypotheses to figure out what reward I was actually craving. And what I figured out pretty quickly was it had nothing to do with cookies. It had to do with socializing. Nowadays, what happens is at about 3.30 in the afternoon, I absentmindedly stand up, I look around the office, I see a friend, I'll walk over and we'll gossip for 10 minutes, and then I'll go back to my desk. The urge to go get a cookie has completely disappeared. The new behavior has become a habit, and I've lost about 12 pounds as a result. Studies have shown that if you can diagnose your habits, you can change them in whichever way you want. So what are the cues, routines, and rewards in your life? What habit do you want to change? So if you can diagnose a habit, 
if you can slow down enough to actually pay attention to why you're doing that, you might be able to change what it is going on in your life. Now, how many of you from at some point of time in your life or another, how many of you have ever been tempted to do something that you knew was wrong? (laughs) Okay, so a few of us in the room have been tempted. Now, how many of you who have been tempted to do what was wrong have ever actually done something that was wrong? Okay, so we're all on level playing field, right? We're, we're all in this game together. All of us have been tempted to do something at some point in our lives that is wrong, and we've actually done what is the Bible calls evil, right? So we're all there. Now, I believe that the, the more often we make decisions to do something that we know is wrong, the more often that we continue to do it again and again, the more habitual it becomes and the less we're even aware that we're doing it. Would you agree with that? That the more often we choose to go a certain route, that the less we're actually making a decision to do that, we're actually just acting out of habit. Now, I think what James is going to talk about today, what we're going to find in James, I think it speaks directly to that. So let's open up the book of James. It's at the end of the Bible. If you have your Bibles, open them up with me. It's it's near the end. We're going to look at chapter one, just something that James talks about. And here's what he says. God blesses those who patiently endure testing and temptation. God blesses those who patiently endure testing and temptation. Afterward, after the testing and temptation, they will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. Now, one of the things that James comes back to again and again and again is this idea of patience. Patience, have you ever heard the saying, patience is a virtue? Yeah, Patience is actually a godly virtue. It's something that we find tucked into Scripture, and we as humans oftentimes hurry so much, we don't have much patience with each other and with ourselves. And and James says, God blesses those who are patient as they endure testing and temptation. Now, we've all already agreed that we all face temptation, right? We're all there. The challenge is to patiently endure that temptation, to figure out a way to patiently endure or get past the temptation. James continues, And remember, when you are being tempted, do not say, God is tempting me, because God is never tempted to do wrong, and he never tempts anyone else. James wants us to get some good theology in our heads, some good baseline understanding of who God is. Now, I don't know how you view God, but I know based on statistics, that there's probably some people in this room who believe God is standing at a distance right now, and he's like this crusty old man who's just waiting for you to make a mistake. And when you do, he's ready to pounce and let you know that you've made a mistake. James wants to remind us that God is not some distant, crusty grandfather who's simply holding a carrot out in front of us waiting for us to grab the carrot. He's not tempting you. There's another place where this temptation comes from. Um, I took calculus in high school my senior year, and uh, I'll never forget this one day. We were were having a big test, and my calculus teacher came in the room. Uh, The bell has sounded. He passed out our tests, and he said, hey, guys, I have to go to the office for about 30 minutes and take care of some things. And so when you're finished with your test, I want you to turn it in right over here on this desk on top of the answer key that I'm going to put right here. And he left. 
Now, I will say that my teacher was also a football coach, which meant I was going nowhere near the answer key. I thought there would probably be like a, a video camera in the room, he'd be watching, and so I stayed far away from it. But that temptation was too much to overcome for some of my classmates. So they quickly got the answer key, filled in the blanks. Well, we'll give them the benefit of the doubt. Maybe they had actually went through and they knew the right answers and they were filling them out. So they went through, filled out their answers, turned them in. Five minutes before class ended, our teacher walks back in the room and he looks at the class and he says, oh, I forgot to tell you, this actually is the answer key for another test I'm giving to another class later today. Like cold sweat breaks out on half the class and they begin quickly scrambling to change their answers on the test. That is not God. God does not tempt you. And James wants you to understand this, that this temptation that we all face is coming from somewhere else. And he tells us exactly where it comes from. Temptation comes from our own evil desires, which entice us and drag us away. These desires give birth to sin, and where sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. Now, let's hang out here just for a second. Temptation. James tells us that temptation is actually something that comes from within us. That temptation is not some sort of external distraction. Now, my guess is most of us have assumed that temptation is something that's out here. I've thought that for a long time in my life. That temptation is this distraction out here. It's something that pops up and draws me in. But James says, no, no, temptation isn't something external that's just hanging out there. It's not a carrot hanging in front of you. Temptation is actually something that is born within you. The temptation begins within your own heart and your soul and your mind. He said this temptation this, this desire within you, it entices you and it drags you away. This word entice um, is translated in other places as the word lure. Um, how many of you fish? Any fishermen, fisherwomen? Is that what you call them, fisherwomen? I don't know. Fisher people? Any fishers in the room? Yes, yeah, so we got some people who fish. Um, you probably know better than anyone else that the kind of fish that you want to catch, you need to to choose lures that attract those kind of fish, correct? Is that a fair assumption? Right. And so what James says is that our own desires actually are lures that we put out in front of ourselves that entice us, and just as you entice a fish and the fish comes in and takes a bite, it actually begins to drag you away. So it's not an external person who's fishing, but we actually ourselves are holding the own bait out in front of us and we're the ones who are enticed, we're lured, and then we're drug away. These desires that are born within us, whatever it is for you, these, these desires that are born within us give birth, it says, to sin. Sin, in the Bible, the word literally means to miss the mark. You would say, well, what do you mean to miss the mark? Does it mean to like put the wrong answer on a test? No, no, that's not what it means to miss the mark. If the mark is life, that we want to experience life, the life that God has for us, then sin is missing the mark of life for us. We believe 
that all of Scripture points to this idea that God wants us to experience the fullness of life. And anytime we do something that misses that mark, that is sin. It causes us to miss the life that he has for us. So these evil desires within us that tempt us, that lure us away, it gives birth to the sin, missing the mark of life. And it says that it drags us away. Where sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. If you are to catch a fish and take it out of the water, what happens to that fish? This is not a trick question. It dies, right? The more we buy in to the lie, the the more that we pursue sin in our lives and it becomes habitual for us, the less life we live. We're dead, even though we might have breath and we might go through life. Where sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. Um, There's a story in Luke chapter 4. It's a story of Jesus' temptation. And I think it gives us a beautiful picture of the desires that that I think really all of us struggle with. Um, the, The story goes that Jesus, after he's baptized and after God says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased, that Jesus makes his way into the desert and he fasts. And then he comes face to face with some temptations. The first temptation is this, to turn stones into bread. Now, if you hadn't eaten for 40 days, do you think you'd be hungry? Yes, you'd be hungry. So Jesus is tempted by Satan to turn this rock into bread. You can do this. You're God's son. You're all powerful. You can do whatever you want. You're hungry. Eat something. But Jesus says, no, that would be a misuse of my power. The Bible says, man does not eat on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the Father, right? So the second temptation comes up. Uh, Satan shows Jesus all this land and all of these kingdoms, and he says, you can have all of this. All of these people will bow down to you. You can have all the power and authority that you want. Jesus says, no, that's a misuse of my power. I will not do that. And he speaks God's word back to Satan. He fights the temptation. The third temptation. Satan says to him, throw yourself off the mountain. And if you are God's son, the angels will surround you. They will not allow you to be hurt. You'll have security and safety. Jesus says, no, I won't use my power in that way. These three desires... I think, match a lot of what we face in life. Number one, the temptation for comfort. The the temptation to do whatever we can to find comfort in our lives. Uh, The second one that Jesus faced is this temptation, this desire for success and power. And if I'm honest, this is one of the biggest temptations I face. It's this temptation to be successful, to to climb some sort of ladder and and have success. I think many of us men, if we're honest, we struggle with this. We want to be seen as successful. We want to have some power. And the third one, security and safety. 
We have this desire to be secure and safe. And many of us chase all these financial dreams to find security and safety, which actually isn't even possible here in this world, but we, we look for it anyway. And we're willing, we're willing to do whatever it takes to find comfort, success, power, security, and safety. Um, John Ortberg, one of my favorite authors and pastors, I love to listen to John Ortberg talk, he says this, um, he says that, uh, that Jesus said this long ago, made this diagnosis, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. How many of you agree with that? That you have this willing spirit within you, but your, your flesh, like you actually are weak to actually do what you want to do? Yeah, yeah. The spirit is willing, but the, the, flesh, the, the flesh, the body is weak. This is very true and largely ignored and forgotten in our day. And then he says this, I love this last line, habits eat willpower for breakfast. I like that. Our habits actually eat willpower for breakfast. Um, Paul, he says this. He sounds like a crazy man. Paul and I would get along. He says, I don't really understand myself, for I want to do what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate, but I want to do what is right, but I can't. I want to do what is good, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. <laughs> Can any of you relate to Paul today, right? Amen, Paul. Yeah. And then he finds himself, after writing this in, in Romans, he finds himself saying, what a miserable person I am. I don't have the power to do anything on my own. And then he says, what can save me from myself? You know where he turns? He says, thank God for his power. Thank God for what he did through Christ and his spirit that lives in me. Listen, God has given you all the power that you need through the Holy Spirit. Once you place your life in Jesus Christ, you have been given all the power you need to fight the temptation in your life and find life. Now, there are times when we want to throw up our hands and say, this is all God's work. If God wants me to experience life, I'll experience it. But God always gives us a choice. We must cooperate with his spirit that lives within us. So how do we do that? If we're like Paul and we say, I want to do what is right, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong. I, I want to fight this temptation, but I can't. I find myself doing it anyway then we must also identify with Paul and say, thank God that he has given us the power through Christ by his Holy Spirit to live in this way. Um, Psalm chapter one, maybe this could become a little pattern for us. Psalm chapter one, David writes this. Oh, the joy of those who do not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. Listen to his language. Who don't walk, stand, or sit. Don't walk in the... Counsel of the wicked, stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But rather, they delight in the law of the Lord, meditating on it day and night. They are like trees planted along the riverbank, bearing fruit in every season. Now that's a picture of life, isn't it? Bearing fruit in every season. I want to challenge you this morning to name your bait, to be honest about the desire 
within you, that leads you, that tempts you, that lures you into unhealthy patterns. I want to challenge you to be honest about that. When we sing this last song, we're going to sing a song together. Um, Maybe you want to come and write it down. I think there's power in being honest and actually writing things down. Um, So maybe you want to come to one of these crosses and there's paper and pens. Maybe you simply want to write it down. If if you're someone and you would say, I just, I don't know what that is, uh, maybe it would be one of those three things. Maybe it's comfort, maybe it's success, and maybe it's security. Maybe that's what's down deep driving you in certain directions. And maybe just write that down and come and put it up on the cross. And you may not have any idea why you're doing that, but maybe it becomes the first step in getting out of this pattern of sin that you're in. Um, the second challenge I want to give you. So number one, name, name your temptation, name your desire that's driving you in unhealthy directions. The second one is this. Um, David said um, that, that those who love the law of their heavenly Father, that meditate on it, that's where they find joy. So when you name your bait, when you name your temptation, I want to challenge you this week to find a scripture, a passage of scripture that speaks directly to that and fill your mind with it. Put it on the dashboard of your car. Don't look at it instead of the red lights, but put it on the dashboard of your car. Put it on your mirror in your bathroom. Put it somewhere where you'll see it every day and fill your mind with God's word. Meditate on it. Fix your mind on it and see if it won't lead you away from unhealthy patterns that lead to death. Let's, let's stand together. And um, as we sing, we just want to give you some space to respond. Maybe it's writing down a note and put it on the cross. Maybe you want to light a candle, which represents God's presence. We just want to give you space to do whatever you need to do to respond to God. Father God, you are good. And you've given us your word. It directs us, it guides us. Sometimes it's uncomfortable because it it begins to poke and prod in ways that we may not be comfortable with. But God, I pray that your spirit would work in our hearts and our minds this morning, that we would be honest. Maybe about some of the patterns we're living, the habits we're living. Pray that we'd be honest about the desires that are down deep within us. God, I pray that your spirit would lead us to life. We would find life in you alone. Thank you for being a loving father who always has your arms open wide for your children. Pray that this would be pleasing in your sight this morning.